Hey, and thanks for tuning in to the Father's House podcast. The Father's House exists to see people discover life in Jesus. We hope that today's message brings you fresh life and renewed hope as you listen. Enjoy. To the Word. Uh, having taken a one-week break from a series we just started, uh, we're going to jump back in today to the series we started the week after Easter called Who Am I? Uh, if you've been with us for a bit, you know that we spent eight weeks talking about the I Am statements Jesus makes of himself in the book of John. And at the conclusion of that series on Easter, we decided to go into the following week some of the statements that Jesus makes about you and I, the, the you are statements in scripture. Uh, if you missed any of those, well, there's only one sermon. If you missed me throwing salt from the stage, uh, you can go back and check out the first installment of that on our app or on our uh, podcast there. Uh, it'll help you frame in all that we're gonna discuss in the coming weeks. But I do wanna revisit a thesis that we discussed in week one because it's going to play a major role in our understanding of the text we're going to study today. Uh, That thesis, for those taking notes, was this. I believe that you will live according to your perceived identity. All of us live according to our perceived identity. In other words, your actions, the way you live your life, by and large, is the byproduct of the way you see yourself. If we believe what the enemy has spoken over us, If we believe what the accuser of the brethren, the one who comes to steal, kill, and destroy, according to Mark chapter 10, if we believe that about ourselves, we are going to live accordingly. If you believe that you are a failure, that you are a mistake, that you are broken and irreparable, if you believe what your broken past says about you or what broken people have said about you or how your culture defines you or that you are unworthy of love or affection, if you believe these things, they will invariably play out in the way you live your life. It will become a downward spiral of self-fulfilling prophecy where you live guilty and ashamed and you never step into all that God has for you because that's who you believe you are. However, alternatively, if we believe what the word of God says about us, if we believe what the creator says about us, that you're not a failure, you're not a mistake, that you are actually blessed, that you are forgiven, that you are loved, that you are the righteousness of Christ Jesus, that you are above and not beneath, that you are the head and not the tail, you're more than a conqueror in Christ Jesus, you're victorious in him, that you are an heir to an eternal inheritance, you can start applauding at any moment and that'll be fine. If you believe these things about yourself, I'm not insecure, you are if you're not applauding. Come on, this is what Jesus says about you. This is who we are and if we believe that, it will play out in the way we live our lives. We will be more than conquerors. We'll say no to sin. We'll be able to overcome some temptation. We'll live accordingly because that's what God says about us and we believe it. And it's imperative that we remain in that thought process as we step into today's conversation because the you are statement we're going to look into this morning, perhaps more than any of the other ones, it has the ability to cause us to think that Jesus offers us in these statements some prescriptive way of life. If you do this and this and this, then I will love you more or I'll accept you more or I'll bless you more. But that is not Jesus's motivation in any of these statements. His mode of operation has never been to dangle a carrot and get you to chase it so that you can do more and live better and try to come up to a higher level. That's not how God works. It is always the empowerment of his grace and encounter with his love. And the reason that Jesus speaks these things over us is because he believes our thesis. He believes if you see yourself the way he sees you, it will transform the way you live your lives. And so with that thesis in mind, I wanna look at this passage of scripture in Matthew chapter five, the following verse, not the one we studied the first time, but now this, the next sentence in this uh, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this. You are the light 
of the world, like a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way that your good works shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. You are the light of the world. That's the one we're gonna dig into today. And if that phrase sounds familiar, it's because it should. We actually discussed this in our prior series where Jesus himself said in John chapter eight, I am the light of the world. Anyone who follows me does not have to walk in darkness. But now Jesus is flipping the script. He's now saying the same thing about you and I as he said about himself. No longer is he the light, but he's saying now you are that same light in your world. And so since Jesus is using the same language, I felt it only appropriate to recycle the title of that prior sermon because as we go into the text today, I think we're gonna discover that Jesus is telling us what's true of him should also be true of us. So I wanna title this chat in sequel fashion, Lanterns Not Light Bulbs, the sequel, all right? Lanterns Not Light Bulbs, the sequel. Uh, let's pray and we'll get into uh, the text. Jesus, we love you. Thank you that as we lift up your name and the simple declaration that you are holy. Uh, we join in with heaven, as was said a moment ago, and your presence comes to dwell among us. Thank you that you are here and, and you long to meet with us and transform us before we leave this place. And as we go to the word, I pray that it would do what it's promised to do. You said that your word never goes out and returns void. It always accomplishes what you intend for it to accomplish. So regardless of our, our headspace or our heart condition, I pray that your word would go out and accomplish some stuff today, that you would transform us from the inside out and that we'd leave this place different. And one more thing, Jesus, I pray for um, Wardell Stephen Curry right now. In just a moment, he's gonna step out onto that stage along with his fellow warriors. And God, we pray for victory today. I'm sick and tired of seeing kings win. Warriors are better than kings. May there be no beam lit and may the warriors walk away victorious today in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Come on, man. We got to pray. We got to pray. Those, those are the rules. All right. So it is probably no surprise uh, that by nature of what I do for a living, I spend a fair bit of my time studying the scriptures. At least hopefully that's not a surprise to anybody today. Uh, I did have a high school girl come up to me a couple of months ago and she said, so like, what does a pastor do for the other six days of week after they get up there on Sunday and they just, they share? Suggesting that basically I just stand up here and say whatever comes to mind and then the rest of the week I lounge around and you know, just sunbathe, which would be great, but I promise you that's not true. That is, that is not how my work week works. Uh, on average, I spend about 20 hours per week or 40% of my work week preparing sermons and studying and looking at the theologians and the Greek and all of that stuff. Hopefully by the time I stand in front of you, there's something helpful and not heresy that I can share as a result of those studies. I think about half the time it's not heretical, so it's great. Uh, but over the years, as I've studied the scriptures, I've learned to ask myself a number of questions during sermon preparation to ensure that what I present on a Sunday morning is both helpful and not heresy. Uh, questions, for example, like, is what I want to share timely or relevant to the people in our community? Is this something that is keeping in step with the times and seasons of, of where our city is at or where our nation is at or where the community is at? Or is this something completely out of left field? Uh, I ask questions like, is this something I want to say or is this something the Holy Spirit wants to say? 
Is this me reacting or offering an opinion to something? Or is this truly the voice of God, the heart of God for his people? Am I tuned in to what he wants to say? Another important question I ask myself is, do I have an authority to speak on this subject? In other words, am I living out what I'm telling you to live out? Or am I just offering some opinion from a stage as a hypocrite that isn't actually doing what I'm telling other people to do? That's really important. One of my least favorite things that I hear preachers say all the time is, I'm preaching this to myself right now. I'm like, if you're preaching this to yourself right now, you should stop preaching it right now and you should go home and figure out how to live it out and then you can come back on a stage and walk in authority with what you're trying to share. That's important to me. But once I've, I've settled all those questions and we've got a scripture in mind for a weekend, I ask myself one more question as I dive in and begin to study, and it's this. I ask, is there a truth that is buried beneath the surface of this text that gets lost on us because of our modern cultural context or uh, our inability to understand the original language that the scriptures were written in? Is this a black and white statement being made or is there something deeper, some truth that we need to dig and mine out to find? And such was the case this week. As I asked that question, I went to the theologians, I went to the Greek, I dug and I studied hoping that in so doing, I'd be able to present to us today some multi-point sermon with an aha moment where those of us who've heard this text before and, and studied it before would go, oh my gosh, I never saw that. I didn't know that about the scriptures. And, and we'd walk out here challenged to, to, to really dig deeper and, and live this thing out. Unfortunately, that is not going to happen today. <laughs> I would love to offer you some new spin or a different angle on this text because we didn't see it for all these years, but that's not what this text is all about. This is actually a very simple statement that Jesus is making here. It's the same in the Greek as it is in the English. When Jesus tells us that we are supposed to be like lights in a dark world, ultimately living our lives in such a way that draws attention and affection to him, he means that we're supposed to be like lights in a dark world, living in such a way that when those living in darkness look at us, they immediately see Jesus. It's literally that simple. We could end the sermon now and I'll go watch the game. <laughs> what, what he's saying quite simply is that our day-to-day -day lives, our, our actions, our reactions, our postings on social media, our entertainment choices, the way we treat other people, the way we work, the way we date, the way we socialize. Every aspect of our life should be so countercultural that when people who live in darkness look at you and look at me, they immediately see Jesus. Well, one theologian did a bit of an exhaustive job on this text, and he wrote this. William Barclay said, a Christianity whose effects stop at the church door is not much use to anyone. It should be even more visible in the ordinary activities of our world. Our Christianity should be visible in the way we treat a shop assistant across the counter, in the way we order a meal in a restaurant, in the way we treat our employees or serve our employer, in the way that we play a game or drive or drive or drive or park a car. In the daily language we use, in the daily literature we read, as Christians, we should be just as much a Christian in the factory, the workshop, the shipyard, the mine, the schoolroom, the surgery, the kitchen, the golf course, and the playing field as we are in church. Jesus did not say, you are the light of the church. He said, you are the light of the world. I love the old guys, man. They always say it better. But if Barclay doesn't do it for you, then, then I offer the more synoptic version of what Jesus said. After telling us that 
we are to be this kind of light, he uses an analogy to help his hearers understand what he's talking about. He says, you are the light of the world. And then he says, like a city that is set on a hill which cannot be hidden. Like a city on a hill that can't be hidden. Now that might sound like just beautiful poetic language from Jesus, but it's not. It's actually very literal day-to-day conversational language that Jesus is using because, using because he understands his audience. Uh, in biblical times, the city of Jerusalem was often referred to as a city on a hill. And the reason it was referred to as a city on a hill was both because it was physically located on a hill, a hill called Mount Zion that we read about in scripture, but also because at the very highest point of Jerusalem was the temple, which housed the Ark of the Covenant, the very resting place for the presence of God. And so when Jesus looks at you and I and is here this day and he says, you're supposed to be the light of the world like a city that is set on a hill, he's essentially saying you're supposed to be like Jerusalem. In, in the same way that a weary traveler from the dark valley below could look up and see the flickering lights of a city like a beacon in the middle of the night calling out the presence of God is over here, so your life should be like a light in a dark world and in a dark culture declaring the glory of God is found on the inside of this place and all the weary travelers can come and experience Jesus through me. You should be like a city on a hill. This is not complicated language. This is very simple, black and white, day to day, in in our doings, in our actings, in our reactings, this is what Jesus is saying. But although this is not a complicated teaching, I think we would all agree it can be very challenging. And the reason it's challenging is because if we're supposed to be the light, it feels at times like we live in a world that just wants to punch our lights out, right? Wants to extinguish that which God has ignited on the inside of us, especially in a pervasive and under-illuminated culture like San Francisco and the surrounding Bay Area a godless area that wants nothing to do with a creator and wants to become gods themselves. It can be very difficult to be a light in this place. And so Jesus, knowing that his followers would find themselves in situations like ours, he expounds on his analogy even further and he begins to give some very practical tips, some handles, some tools for us to be this kind of light in the world. After telling us that we are supposed to be like this city set on a hill, he goes on to say, no one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, in the same way to everything else I was just telling you about, let your good works shine out for all to see. Uh, I wanna camp here for just a moment if we could because I believe if we understand and we identify with that singular sentence in this teaching, it will be a game changer for our faith. So so, so tune in. Jesus says, let your, your good works shine out for all to see. Now at face value, that might sound like a very prideful or even a contradictory statement knowing what comes next in the text. As Jesus goes on to teach the Sermon on the Mount, he begins to to give some day-to-day instructions for Christian living. And many of those instructions involve us doing things not in public, but in secret. He says, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. Give in secret, pray in secret, fast in secret. If you do your good deeds before men so that people will acknowledge you, then you've already gotten your reward in full. They'll give you a high five and shout your praise, but God doesn't care about it at all. So so he's very clear that we should be doing these good deeds in secret. And yet here, 
Before he tells us those things, he says, do your good works in front of all people so that they'll praise God. So which is it, Jesus? Do you want me to be out there doing good or do you want me to be closed off behind the door doing my good deeds in secret? Which one do you want? Well, to understand the heart of this statement, we need to dig into the original language a little bit. Uh, in the Greek, there are two words that the English translates as good. Uh, the first of them is agathos, agathos. And, and agathos, it literally just describes the quality of something. It is of good quality. Uh, for examples, uh, the Warriors are an Agathos team. Uh, they will defeat a not-so-Agathos team today, and they will go on to the second round of the division finals, and the church said amen. Okay, you get it. But in addition to that word, there's a second word that the Greek language uses and the English translates into good, and I think it's a pretty bad translation, actually. Uh, the word in the Greek is the word kalos, and it means this, captivating or attractive. Not just of good quality, but captivating or attractive. It, it, it means it draws you in, causes you to stop and stare, maybe gawk a little bit and just. You heard my wife say amen really loud a moment ago, and that's because she knows that I colose her every time she walks into the room. I stop, I stare, I gawk. I'm like, hey girl, how you doing? And when Jesus tells us in this text that we are to let our good works shine before people, he does not use the agathos word here. He's not just simply telling us to be do-gooders. Hey, don't kick your dog and, you know, make sure that you go and serve at the food pantry and, 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 and try not to jaywalk. And that's not what he's saying. Those things are great, but there's a lot of people that do those things that do not fear God. And in so doing, they're not giving any glory to God by their actions. No, what Jesus is saying here, let your kalos deeds let, let, let your, your, your actions, your lifestyle, your reactions, let them be so attractive to the world around you that they are captivated by the beauty of Jesus at work in your life. What he's saying is that our lives should be lived in such a way that when people see us, they stop and they stare and they cannot help but give glory to God as a result of what they're seeing. Simply put, Jesus is saying you should have an attractive faith and attractive faith. So let me do what I do every week. I'm gonna pose a question to you. And I apologize in advance. This one's a little bit awkward, but it seems timely considering the text we're looking. So here's the question I wanna to pose to you today. In light of that, are you attractive? Turn to the person, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> are you attractive? Is your faith attractive? In the way that you treat people? and the way that you speak to individuals on social platforms, and the way that you carry yourself in the work environment, in the way that you drive, and <laughs> the way you parent your children in the, in the display of your marriage. Is your faith attractive? Do people stop and go, man, you don't think like everybody else. You don't respond like everybody else. You don't treat your spouse like everybody else. You don't raise your kids like everybody else. Do they have to stop and go, there's something that's drawing me. Or, like so many Christians, have you made the faith repulsive and not attractive? Sometimes I think that there are Christians out there that they romanticize the idea of being repulsive. It's like validation for them. 
You know what I'm talking about, right? Probably no one in here. They're all at the nine o'clock service, but you know how these people are. They like get in these bickering matches and they're fighting and they're posting and they're saying stuff and they're talking trash about this other group of people and no one wants to be around them. It's like their life verses where Jesus said, blessed are you when people persecute you for my sake because yours is the kingdom of heaven. And they're like, you know, everyone's rejecting me just because I'm serving Jesus. Actually, they're rejecting you because you're a jerk and no one wants to be around you. Like, but it's like rejection is this sick, twisted form of validation where they're like, I'm living the truth. I'm doing, I'm doing God's work here on the planet. But, but what? And then they create their little social circles of like-minded or better said, small-minded individuals that hate everybody and they call it their church. Guys, that is not what Jesus was like. That was not the ministry of Jesus. Jesus did not celebrate his rejection. In fact, the most disreputable, rejected people on the planet wanted to be around Jesus because his ministry was attractive. He did not build social walls or political walls or moral walls around himself. He did not filter his followers by their pedigree or their preference or their proclivities. No, he said, let all who are weary, all who are broken, come unto me and find the rest that your weary soul longs for. He stood up on the day of the, temp of the festival in the temple and he said, is anyone thirsty? Has anyone been beat up and chewed up and spit out by their world and there is a deep thirst in your soul for something more? Come unto me and drink from the rivers of living water and I will provide satisfaction for your soul. That was the heart of God. This church following Jesus, being one of his disciples, this was never intended to be some social circle where we bury our heads in the ground and we stay away from the deep dark world out there. No, we were supposed to be a lighthouse. We were supposed to be a beacon in the darkness, a city on a hill with gates wide open to the broken and the disenfranchised and the rejected and the one that society wants nothing to do with saying, come unto me, come out of the storm, come out of the darkness and experience the goodness of God. We were never supposed to be repulsive. We're supposed to be attractive. So, how you looking? How you doing? <laughs> Are you attractive? Because listen, I'm going to say something that's going to sound bad, but you're going to have to just hear me out. I would rather be attractive than right. I know how that sounds. You're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. This guy doesn't like truth. Calm down. Gear down, shifter. All right, we're going to, it's going to be okay. Let me explain myself. I would rather be attractive than right, because here's what I've discovered in my own life. Maybe you've discovered in yours. For me, it is entirely possible to do the right thing the wrong way and make Jesus repulsive in the process. I will. Let me tell you a story about myself and not somebody else, because I'm gonna throw myself under the bus. Uh, October 16th, 2022, we had a great day at church. It was awesome. Jesus was here. Some of you guys were here. I think we had 12 new families show up for the first time. Uh, at the time, it was one of our larger services we've ever had. 700 people came to church and people got saved. People got baptized like we're going to do after the service today. We had a great Discover uh, class and a bunch of people came and got plugged into the life of the church. It was awesome. And as is our custom, Robin and I got into the car and we were driving home after church, just celebrating all that God was doing in the community, just loving it and we come down 19th, turn up Valencia, heading back to our house. And as we're heading home, I see a group of skateboarders 
that are jumping and grinding on this. Grinding is a term that, they, never mind, I'll tell you later. Uh, but it's not what you think. Uh, and they're, they're destroying one of my neighbor's uh, stucco walls in front of their house. And at first I just kind of drove by and didn't think much of it because I was like, ah, we're headed to a birthday party for my kid, that's more important. But before I got to the next block, I thought to myself, man, if someone saw similar situation taking place in front of my house, I would want one of my neighbors to stop and do something about it. So I, I flipped a UE and I turned around and I pulled up in front of the skateboarders and I began to address them, initially firmly, but respectfully. I said, hey, this ain't your house. You guys are messing up my neighbor's property. I, I see the, the stucco broken all there on, on, on the ground. You guys need to leave. Just get in your car and get out of here and, and move on. Uh, shockingly, they were disinclined to acquiesce to my request. And so when that did not work, I abandoned the friendly neighbor approach and went to the annoying tattletale instead. And I said, listen, you guys, if you don't leave right now, I'm gonna call the police. I'm calling the cops, the popo. They're gonna come down here and take care of you. That still didn't work. And when my efforts seemed fruitless, I can neither confirm nor deny that I got out of my vehicle and I stood in front of the wall where they were destroying my neighbor's property. I may or may not have flashed my SFPD chaplaincy badge. And I may or may not have called the assistant police chief who comes to our church and is sitting in here right now because that's what he wants to deal with on a Sunday. <laughs> and when he didn't pick up the phone, I may or may not have pretended like I was talking to him even though it was his voicemail and said, yeah, you're coming down here right now to come get these guys. Yeah, he's coming, he's coming, you know because I'm super mature. But as you can imagine, in this interaction, uh, emotions got high and a little tense. And at one point in our exchange, I said to the group of skateboarders, one day you guys are gonna grow up and you're gonna get a real job and you're gonna buy a house. And when you own a home, someone is gonna be doing this in front of your property and you're gonna hope that a neighbor stops and does something about it and doesn't let them just destroy something that you paid a lot of money for. And in response to my statement, after cussing me out and yelling at me, one of the guys said, we don't need to grow up. We are adults. And this is where I messed up. I said, no, you're not. You're a bunch of deadbeats with nothing better to do with your lives than sit around and destroy somebody else's property and then cut tail and run. Now, what I didn't know was that one of the skateboarders had a video camera on the entire time. And he happened to notice in his film the TFH.Church bumper sticker on the back of my vehicle. Fair warning, okay? Do not put that on your car unless you're ready to deal with the consequences of such things. And after he left, he got online and looked up who we were and discovered that the person calling his friends deadbeats was the pastor who had just left church down the street. And so since we live in the age of social media sliming, uh, I woke up the next day to find that a version of that video had been posted on some social platforms and my inbox was flooded with people that thought my behavior was unbecoming of a pastor and that I should resign from my position at the Father's house. Don't worry, that's not what this is about today. <laughs> but the straw that broke the proverbial camel's back was that the guy who was filming is a Christian. And he began to share with me in a rather lengthy email that he had been using skateboarding as a common uh, way of life for evangelism. 
and that he had been trying to get this group of guys to come to church with him for weeks and he'd been inviting them because he had experienced the life in Jesus that, that we've all experienced and he wanted his friends to experience the same. However, now that a pastor pointed a finger and called them all deadbeats, they were completely uninterested in coming to church with him because that's what all Christians are like. Yeah, so I ate the crow, ate the humble pie, apologized, repented to Jesus, apologized to his friends. And fortunately, the videos were removed and life goes on and all is good between the two of us. Now, was I right? Yes. Yes, I was right. Just, <laughs> just to be clear. <laughs> okay. Just make sure that we're on the same team here. It's Bible to take care of your neighbor's property, all right? That's the right thing to do. In fact, some of you are thinking right now like, I don't see the punchline of this story. Tim didn't do anything wrong. I don't understand. What, what, what's he saying? And to you, I say, thank you. You're my people. Uh, but here's where I messed up. Here's where I messed up. I did the right thing the wrong way. I did the right thing with the wrong heart. I was not the light in this situation. I responded like every other angry neighbor that would not know Jesus would have responded. And in my response, instead of making faith attractive to a bunch of guys that desperately needed Jesus, I repelled them and pushed them away. And if I could diagnose why I did what I did, and probably why I'm not alone in this, but many of us have found ourselves in situations where we should have been light and we acted like darkness instead, I would say that it has something to do with our sermon title today. In that situation, I believe I traded in my lantern for a light bulb. Let me remind us, for those that were not here for the prequel to this sermon, that this word uh, light in the Greek is the word phos. And Jesus says it of himself and of us that we are the phos, the fire, the lanterns of the world. So to be clear, Jesus just called you fire, all right? You fire, you fuego, you caliente. Uh, in Mandarin, let's see if I get this right. You're hua. Yeah, that's right. Okay. You're fire. But when it comes to faith, there is a big difference between this fire and a light bulb. Uh, let's turn the lights down for the second time in two weeks and the third time in eight weeks because we have no other way to <laughs> use sermon props around here. <laughs> a light bulb. Let's compare the two, shall we? The way I see it, there's some fundamental problems with a light bulb faith. Number one, uh-oh. <laughs> a light bulb switches on and off. It can choose when it wants to stay on, but when it's convenient, it can switch off. It can hang out and be light in front of a bunch of other light bulbs, but then when it's by itself and it doesn't feel like standing for what it's supposed to do alone, it can turn off. A light bulb can stay on in the context of worship in a church building, but then go home to a dark room in front of a computer screen and turn off. A light bulb can create a dating profile for itself and say, I am the light of the world. But when that date materializes and they're on the date and they feel like engaging in some impurity, they can turn the bulb off. A light bulb can stand in front of a bunch of people and share the gospel and then encounter some skateboarders. Okay, you get the point. Second problem with a light bulb is that it can't travel. 
it's restricted to the length of its cable. If I were to walk too far away, eventually this light bulb would unplug and it wouldn't be able to do what it was created to do. Which is a problem if the whole purpose of being light is to go out into a dark world because this would only work inside of this building and if I tried to walk it out onto the steps into the city of San Francisco, this is what it would look like. Thirdly, a light bulb burns out. Eventually, according to the manufacturer, after about 20,000 hours, this thing isn't gonna work anymore. It'll start out strong. It'll have all the joy of its salvation and get excited about the fact that it's a light bulb, but eventually this is its demise. It's only a matter of time before it goes from illuminated to dark. And finally, the problem with the light bulb is that light bulbs are fragile. If this comes up against opposition, some pressure, if it gets bumped by the wrong thing, it will shatter and will fail to be used for what it was intended to be used for, which I intended to do from the stage this week, but after throwing salt, I was asked not to put glass all over our stage, and so I'm refraining right now in this moment, and it's very difficult for me. Yeah, light bulbs, they turn on, they turn off, they're restricted, they can't move, they got a a life expectancy, and they're fragile. But what is true of the bulb is not true of the flame. Isaac, if you could turn the lights back on for just a moment. The flame is different. This flame does not switch on and off. There's no switch on the side of this thing. No, once it's lit, it just stays lit. It continues to burn. And, and this is not restricted to a certain location. I, I would dare say if you took this lantern into a broken home, it would still light. If you took it into a dark alleyway, it would still light. If you took this lantern into a uh, God-hating government building, it would still work. If you took it into an atheistic university, it would still burn. If you took it into a Masonic building on a Sunday morning, this light would still work. And this lantern does not have a, a life expectancy. As long as I continue to trim the wick and keep their oil in the tank, it will stay lit for as long as it wants to stay lit. And fire is not fragile, is it? No, fire, quite the contrary, it's fierce. You get fire in contact with some stuff, it'll just ignite everything around it. In fact, I could say this, the greater the opposition, the greater the ignition of fire. You get it around some dry material that's been deprived for a little bit of time, it will ignite immediately and you will not be able to put that fire out despite your best efforts. I think you understand what I'm saying today. If you're picking up what I'm putting down, if you're mopping up what I'm spilling. This is what we're supposed to be. We are not light bulbs. We are lanterns. We do not switch our faith on and off at a whim. We don't have an expected lifetime where, okay, I'm only gonna be on fire for God for a little bit and then I'm gonna eventually burn out and I'm just gonna settle to be one of those bitter old Christians for the rest of my life. Our faith is not restricted to 2850 19th Avenue. Our faith should be available in every season, in every situation, all throughout this city. You are a holy vessel filled with the oil of God's spirit and you were created to burn in all situations at all times, regardless of what opposition comes your way. You are not fragile, you are fierce. Come on, somebody. The fire of God is alive and well on the inside of you. 
In fact, opposition is just greater fuel. James chapter one says you're blessed when you go through trials of many kinds because it allows your faith to grow. So when things come against you, it actually is like more oil in the tank, causing you to burn even more. And you do not do this with your faith. You go from faith to faith, from glory to glory. You are all that you were created to be, to burn for God. Why? Because you're a lantern. You're a light. It's who you are. At least it's who we're supposed to be. But what if we're not? What if when we look at our lives, we see more bold behavior than we do lantern? Then what? What are we supposed to do? Well, to borrow a line from the previous sermon in this series, we do not have an effort problem on our hands. If we don't see ourselves burning as we should, it's not because we need to try harder to do better and become the thing that God has already told us we are. We are that whether we like it or not. Rather, we have an identity crisis on our hands. We've forgotten who we are. So if you find yourself in that space today, let me remind you who you are. You are loved. You are blessed. You are highly favored. You are the righteousness of Christ Jesus. You are made white as snow by the blood of Jesus. Nothing can come against you. Every weapon formed against you will not prosper. You are more than a conqueror in Christ Jesus. You're kings and priests, heirs to an eternal inheritance. This is who you are. And you are one of these. You're a light. You just might need some fresh fire. You might need to be ignited again. You know, as I was praying this week for the weekend, I just kept getting this image in my head of all of these lanterns all around the room that were unlit. People who at one point were on fire for Jesus. People whose maybe younger years or even in the last couple of years or even months were just hungry for the things of God, hungry for the presence of God. It doesn't take much thought to go back to that place where you his word was being devoured and his presence was longed for and you knew what you were called to do and you had vision for your future and vision for your life, but for whatever reason, life circumstance, the enemy beating you down, unanswered prayers, you find yourself like this today. You're still the lantern, you just got no flame burning. But that's about to change in Jesus' name. I believe that Jesus brought you here on this Sunday because he wants to reignite something inside of you today. Uh, unbeknownst to most of you, there have been some unlit lanterns in this room for the entirety of this message. And that's the reason you didn't know they were here. They're unlit. They have no flame. But even though they look like this one and they have all the same qualities, the oil, the wick, they're the same the reason they haven't been lit is because they haven't been near the source. And all it will take for them to be ignited again is to come close to the source. In fact, if you are one of those with a lantern, would you begin to make your way to the stage? Jesus said in John chapter eight, I am the light of the world. Anyone who follows me does not have to walk in darkness. 
of that light, it says in John chapter one, verse five, that that light shines in the darkness and the darkness can never extinguish it. What is he saying? Before we're anything, Jesus is this. He's the source. He's the one who burns and never stops burning. He's the one who shines like a light in the darkness. He's the one that beckons unto, unto every unlit lantern, come unto me. If you've lost your flame, if you've lost your fire, then just come to me once again. And my promise to you is this, in one moment, one prayer, one interaction with me, one desperate cry from a place, a place of brokenness, one service, one reminder of the call, I will make you burn once again. Just come close to the source. And I believe that is the invitation for some of us here this morning. If your wick is flameless, then come to Jesus, come close again. Do not settle for dead religious behavior where you're an occasional church attender and you infrequent the presence of Jesus. Live close to his presence. And there will never be a moment where you'll have to wonder, can I be the light today? Because you'll have the light that leads to life on the inside of you. And if that's your need or desire today, we're gonna conclude in a, in a unique way. I'm gonna read the lyrics of a song out to us by an old singer, Keith Green. And then we're gonna conclude in worship after we pray. Uh, and I invite you to just personalize these lyrics and make them your prayer this morning. In fact, why don't we bow our heads as I pray these lyrics out over the room. They say this. Oh Lord, please light the fire that once burned bright and clear. Replace the lamp of my first love that burns with holy fear. I wanna take your word and shine it all around, but first help me just to live it, Lord. And when I'm doing well, help me to never seek a crown, for my reward is giving glory to you. Jesus, right now, for every person in this room who might find themselves in a season where the flame is gone, would you reignite? Would you once again cause them to burn bright and clear as they come into contact with you, with the source, as they draw close. I thank you that the scriptures say you draw close to them. And in one moment right now, what might've felt like has been dead and gone for a decade could be reignited instantly in your presence. Give us a hunger for your word, restore dreams, Bring vision and clarity back to people's lives. May the, the call of God be so evident, so desirable, they chase after it with everything inside of them again. Let every distraction be set aside. And according to Hebrews 12, may they fix their eyes on Jesus, the author, the finisher of their faith, and strip away all those things that are trying to hold them back. In Jesus' name. With your head still bowed for a moment, I wanna pray for those who might be here and say, Tim, uh, I hear all that you're talking about, but honestly, I, I've not made that decision to follow Jesus. I, I, there's plenty of people I'm sure that need to be reignited, but man, I, I just don't know if, if I've ever had that flame for God. 
Maybe you come from a dead religious background and you just went through the motions and did the church thing, but there was no life. Or maybe you're, you've never been close to Jesus before. Or this is all new to you. I wanna take a moment and pray with you before we conclude. If that describes your life, I wanna say with you a very simple prayer of commitment where you become this light that Jesus is calling you to become. You receive his forgiveness and your eternity is spoken for. You can know that you're in right relationship with Jesus. If that describes where you're at today, would you just simply with no one looking around, just lift your hand and look at me and say, Tim, I need to pray that prayer along with you this morning. Thank you, ma'am. Got you. Yeah, I got you, bro, right there. Yeah, cool, bro. Hallelujah. Yeah, sorry, I didn't see you there. Okay, with these lifting their hands and making this decision, I want our whole church to pray out so they don't feel alone. Repeat after me, say, Jesus, today I give you my life. I thank you for giving yours for mine. Forgive me of my sin and help me to be your follower from this day forward until I see you in eternity. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Come on, let's celebrate all those guys making that decision today. Hey, thanks for taking the time to listen to the Father's House podcast. We hope it helped you wherever you're at in your journey. And listen, we wanna pray with you if you're going through something right now that's difficult. You can go to our website, tfh.church and click on the prayer and praise link tell us how to join you in prayer. Until next time, be blessed.